So let me just go back really quickly to this little section here, the tribulation and the Antichrist, just by means of review, and then we'll go into chapter 12, um, which is a, a close second uh, to my favorite chapter in Daniel. Seven's my favorite, but chapter 12 was a close second. Um, so the tribulation and the Antichrist. So last time we looked at verses, the end of chapter 11, really verses 36 down through the last part of the chapter. And uh, so let me just kind of review verses 36 to 39 that focus on the Antichrist's religious beliefs. Um, again, we talked about how the um, Antichrist is going to be a prideful man, one who's concerned really only with himself um, uh, to, to better understand him. He's just going to be so in love with himself that no other relationships are going to be important to him. And the only God that he's going to serve is the God of war because war is what's going to get him the worship of the world. It's going to force the world to worship him through, through that war. He's going to set out to conquer the world. He's going to throw off that ten-nation confederacy. But as the text reads, some news is going to kind of bother him, going to kind of upset him and change uh, his, his direction of where he's going. And we're told that he will set up his, I guess, headquarters or maybe a forward operating base of some sorts between uh, the Mediterranean and the Temple Mount, kind of in that area. And then the text quickly says very shortly that he would be killed. And that's where we introduce the idea of Revelation chapter 13 into the text. Um, and Revelation 13, 3 says, And I saw one of his heads as if, as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed at the beast. Remember, the Antichrist is trying to mimic everything that there is about Christ. If he wants the world to follow him, he's going to have to look, act, talk, speak, you know, everything like Christ. And so very much a resurrection-type event um, and as war breaks out in the middle of the tribulation between the Antichrist and this confederacy, there's also something else that happens. War breaks out in the heavens. And we talked about Daniel chapter 10, and we worked through that, and we learned that there's a war going on in the heavens, a spiritual warfare going on, and oftentimes that it affects what happens in the physical realm here, in our spiritual realm here. And that other battle in the heavenlies has been going on. It's between these other two individuals. We know them as Satan and Michael. Now, I want to read from Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. And that's the connecting point here that we're going to talk about in Revelation um, as far as what's going on here as we get into chapter 12, the very first verse. Okay? So let me read from Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to their death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. 
So Satan is cast out of heaven, which, which just it means that he's no longer able to stand before the throne of God, be our accuser, what he's doing right now. And this causes, it says, rejoicing in Revelation 12, causes rejoicing in heaven. That's great for the heavens, but that's not so great for the people on earth because as he is cast out, he's full of wrath, the text says. He's angry. Uh, he knows his time is short, um, and he goes after the Jewish people. And so that kind of introduces to us this text here in Daniel chapter 12. I think it's kind of interesting how lots of the numbers correspond between Revelation and Daniel as well. Daniel 12 and Revelation 12. Same thing here. That introduces us to the text tonight of Daniel chapter 12. And Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 says this. At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince, who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. So now we've already been introduced to Michael. Michael is, or was introduced to us earlier as the angel who watches over God's people. When we talked in reference to Daniel chapter 10, we referenced this idea that sometimes there are uh, good angels and evil angels, or good supernatural beings and evil supernatural beings that kind of have a control, or there's a battle that goes on over different areas, okay? And, and the nation of Israel was one of those areas. And so Michael here, He's introduced as the prince, the one who is kind of in charge of safeguarding and watching over, in the spiritual sense, the nation of Israel. But it's during the tribulation time where the text says in Daniel chapter 10, or excuse me, 12, verse 1, that he stands up. It's almost like he's got to get up and actually do something about it. He's got to actually take action. He's not just sitting and doing nothing, but he actually has to get up because it's getting really, really bad. This is that great prince, verse one, who stands up and watches over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. So he's gotta stand up and fight for God's people. But did you see what that text says? It says there's a time in Israel's history, the second half, it's bar none. It is the worst time for the nation of Israel, period, since the nation of Israel was an actual nation. So we could take that really all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when Abraham, when God selected Abraham uh, to, to be the father of the Jewish nation, all the way back to then. So think about that in context of what's already happened to the nation of Israel in the past. The most recent, you know, you think about the Holocaust and how horrible that was, but that's nothing compared to what the tribulation is going to be like. Or we go back to Antiochus in chapter 11 of Daniel. Thousands and thousands of people killed, or even further back to the book of Esther, when one day Haman says, let's just kill all the Jewish people on one single day. So throughout history, there's been tons and tons of ways in which the world has tried to persecute the Jewish people. But the text here tells us that there's, it's going to be, this is, this is the worst during this time of the tribulation. Bar none, the worst. But it's in the nation's darkest hour when God delivers them, okay? God stands up for his people. Michael stands up for his people and delivers them. It says in this text, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Now let me classify this. We've got to stay in context here. Deliverance of everyone written in the book. It's not a reference to salvation as we might think, Okay? 
like in the case of the book of life or the Lamb's book of life. The context here is a reference to the physical deliverance of Israel. The book, as it's called, probably contains the names of all the Jews maybe living in that region who will experience physical deliverance. And we connect this to passages like Zechariah chapter 13 and actually Matthew chapter 24, the words of Jesus. Listen to what Matthew 24 says, verse 15. These are actually the words of Christ as he quote or as he says this. Verse 14, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So when Satan has been cast out and he starts to go after the Jewish people, the second half of the tribulation, Christ tells them, get out of there, flee. And if you read that text in Matthew 24, uh, Jesus is saying, if you're in the field, don't go back and get your clothes to go on a trip, just leave. If you're here, just leave. If you're here, don't do this, just leave, just leave, just leave. Flee as quickly as you can. Back in chapter 11, verse 41, it has an interesting note, and it says the only areas that the Antichrist is not able to conquer are three specific areas, Edom, Moab, and a place in Ammon, or the prominent area of Ammon. Those are three specific areas, as odd as they seem, are not going to be conquered by the Antichrist. And by the way, those are uh, modern-day Jordan. But the text is unclear in Daniel. But when we read Revelation, or excuse me, when we read Matthew 24, we now connect because the area is not taken. That area that is not taken is so that those Jewish people can flee and have a safe place to flee to. You see, God always has a remnant of people that survive. And this group is preserved. They're protected by God from Satan's persecution, okay? Now, in a general sense, anyone who puts their faith in Christ will have their name written down in the Lamb's Book of Life or the Book of Life. But in the context here, we have to be careful of Daniel 12. It's clearly different from that. And by the way, throughout Scripture, uh, there are several books or records that God keeps. And that's also an interesting study, but that's not a study Uh, for tonight or for this time, okay? So understand that when God delivers and when God protects his people, he always protects a remnant of people. He always protects the nation of Israel. He always protects his people, both both physically and, and likely spiritually, but in this context, it's always physically. And so when the Antichrist decides to take over the world, there's a certain area that he can't get to or he doesn't take over. And that's what Jesus is trying to say as he says, flee to the mountains, get out of there. There's safety that's there in this area. Now, let's go to chapter 12, verse 2 and verse 3. Look at what verse verse 2 says of chapter 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, Daniel 12, 2 is generally considered to contain the most explicit reference in the Old Testament to the resurrection of a person, okay? This is the verse, the most explicit verse. Now, look at the verse with me closely here. It says, the Bible never speaks of sleep in reference to the soul, okay? The soul never goes to sleep. There are some religions and and cults that teach that. They teach the idea of soul sleep, okay? That's not what the text of Scripture says. Uh, The soul is who you are. When God created mankind, he breathed into mankind the breath of life, and man became a living soul. You got it. So our body is that physical part 
that houses our soul. The soul is who we are. And the Bible always speaks of sleep as an activity of the body, okay? So if you were to die tomorrow, your body would go into the ground, your soul would go to be with Christ. And we've often quoted, um, quoted Paul's words, I couldn't think. Paul's words many times, absent from the body, is be present with the Lord. And so that's the idea. But what we have to look at when we look at this verse is remember that verse 2 doesn't provide a detailed description of God's plan for all resurrection, okay? We do a careful study through the New Testament, um, and we can see that some people are not all resurrected at the same time. We're speaking in context of the tribulation period. That's what the context we're in here. And those living during these days have died. And those who put their faith in Christ are resurrected at the end of the tribulation, right before Christ inaugurates his kingdom. Now, here's another connecting point for Revelation. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4, 5, and 6. Listen to what it says. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. By the way, did you notice it says I saw the souls of them? It doesn't say I saw the bodies of them. Interesting. It says I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall rise, excuse me, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So those who did not put their faith in Christ during this tribulation period, we might say, are resurrected after the millennial kingdom has ended. This is the best way. Let me put it up on the screen. You're, I know I can already, there you go. He's already ahead of me. So, and pastor's given this to us before too. This is not anything new. Uh, the two different types of resurrection we're talking about. The first is a resurrection unto life. It's for believers. And that happens several times throughout the scriptures. Because if we're talking about the tribulation period, then we know the church is already gone. So we've already been raptured if we're alive. The dead before have been already resurrected, okay? So there's also a resurrection after the tribulation period because some people die in the tribulation because of their testimonies. So they're resurrected after the tribulation period. But there's a second type of resurrection uh, unto death for unbelievers, and that's one event, right? So one event for all of history, all the way from the beginning, all the way to the end. There's one time, and it's called the great white throne judgment. It's after the kingdom, okay? After that millennial kingdom is over, then all those unbelievers at one time are brought before Christ, and he judges them. And of course, they're not in the book uh, the Lamb's Book of Life, and so they are separated from God for all eternity, okay? Their souls are separated. Because remember, your body may perish, but your soul doesn't. Your soul is who you are. When you, that's why life is so important. That's why, uh, you know, this issue of, of Roe versus Wade is so important because it's a living soul, and, and that continues for eternity. So once a soul is brought into existence, it continues for all of eternity, it's, it's immortal. It truly is. So it's either going to be immortal with Christ or immortal separated from Christ. So when we look at this resurrection here in the book of Daniel, he's focusing on the ones during the tribulation period who have 
gone through this intense persecution from the Antichrist, and they've put their faith in Christ, but they've died during the tribulation period. He says, there is hope for you because at the end, you'll be raised. You're not going to uh, uh, miss out on the kingdom. You're not going to miss out on participating in the millennial kingdom. He says, you'll be resurrected right before it, and you'll have time to experience, experience that kingdom. So the easy way just to remember it is that throughout the scriptures, there are many times when there's resurrections for believers, but there's only one time when there's a resurrection for unbelievers, and that's at the great white throne judgment after the millennium is finished. So now verse 3. Look what verse 3 says. It says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So verse 3 includes a special promise to those who are wise, and it says to those who turn many to righteousness. And the parallelism here in the text, not talking about two different groups of people, we're just talking about one group of people here. Okay, so and it's refreshing to see that, you know, that God will reward faithfulness to believers. And in this verse, Daniel doesn't limit faithfulness. Daniel does not limit it. It could include spiritual growth through reading your Bible, memorizing, meditating on the Bible, evangelism, winning others to Christ, giving tithes, offering, support the work of the Lord. may include a host of other things. But even though faithful service to God may seem difficult at times, it's still the right way. And in his time, God will wrong, excuse me, he will right all the wrongs of life as he rewards those who put their, put him first and his will first. You think of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So what it talks about in verse 2, the wise, these are the ones who have spiritual discernment. These are the ones who, you know, we apply God's word to our lives. We obey God's word. We, we try to follow it the best we can. The stars, you're not going to turn into stars, okay? You're not going to like twinkle in the skies, twinkle, twinkle. It's not going to be something like that. But stars, think about it. Stars provide like direction. Stars uh, provide lights. They can be seen by all. You know, you're going to be an example. And so when he's talking about this verse here, he's, he's really talking about the rewards and things that, that, that will be received as part of proper and true faithful service to God. Now, the final instructions here. Final instructions to Daniel here. Look at verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro or to and from, and knowledge shall increase. So when, we, when, it's, when he says to shut up the words of the book, he doesn't mean to hide the book or be quiet about the book or don't say anything about the book. It means to preserve it. And it especially means to preserve it for the generations that followed after Daniel. Okay? Protect it, preserve it, keep it safe. Because the prophecy would serve as a comfort, wouldn't it? And hope to the Jewish people that God hadn't left them. As things continue to get worse and worse for the Jewish people, they could say, well, look, Daniel's prophecies tell us that God has a plan for us. He hasn't left us. There still is a future for us. And in the ancient Near East, concept of sealing a document meant it wasn't to be tampered with, wasn't to be uh, changed in any way. And normally we do the same thing when we want to keep something, the original document, safe. We place it in a safety deposit box or we place it somewhere safe. We make a copy of the, um, you know, of the original and we put it there so it can be preserved for generations and generations. And we do that very same thing today. So he's saying, preserve it. 
which doesn't mean hide it. It just means protect it, but make sure it's passed down. He was told to preserve the entire scroll, the entire book, not just certain portions or certain sections of it. He says, he says preserve the whole thing, he says. Shut the, up the words and seal the book, the whole book, until the time of the end. And many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So, uh, again, the to and fro, knowledge shall increase. we got to take that in context. It's been taken out of context far too many times. But the purpose of the phrase is to simply note that as time passes, the wise will realize that many of Daniel's prophecies have already come to pass in their lifetime. So the study of the book in the, of Daniel in the centuries following when Daniel was written is going to be different than how we study it today. Because if we were a Jew in the, had just gotten back to the land, if we were a Jew living in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and we pulled open Daniel's prophecies and we started reading and trying to understand it, the prophecies of chapter 11 of Daniel would be still yet future. The prophecies of chapter 12 and was, chapter 9 would still all yet be future. But now we open up Daniel's prophecies and we look at it today and we say, oh, chapter 9, well, that's, some of that's in the past. Chapter 10, 11, that's in the past, but we're still waiting for some of chapter 11 and some of chapter 12 to happen in the future. So what he's saying is that many shall run, knowledge shall increase. It just means the further along we get down in history, we'll look back on some of these prophecies. We'll see a fulfillment of some of them. And even though Daniel and his people did not understand the book's prophecies that we did today, the prophecies did come for them because, again, it assured them that God has a plan. When I look at these prophecies, I see that God still has a plan for Israel. He still has a plan for us, and he's still working them out even though we may not understand that plan, and sometimes it might be complicated, and sometimes some of the things in the book of Daniel are really, really complicated. But yet I'm going to trust him despite all the details that he has in the text. Now look at verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank and one on the other river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters, of the river. So you've got three supernatural beings here. How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? And then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, and when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever that this shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Now, back at the beginning of chapter 10, we were introduced to this man clothed in linen. It's been addressing Daniel. And now two others are added to the picture. So this man clothed in linen is almost like uh, some kind of supernatural being who is, is in higher rank than these other two individuals on each side of the river. And these, Daniel is watching this go, watching this happen, okay? And he sees these other two lesser in rank, supernatural beings, asking the other one a question. He's asking him the question that we ask all the time. When? When is it going to happen? When? 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 You know, when? Surely in our lifetime, Jesus is going to come back. When? When is he coming? The disciples asked the same thing as Jesus was ascending back into heaven. When are you coming back? When? So listen, the angels, supernatural beings, ask them the same questions we ask. So I don't feel so bad now. And they were interested in the coming events of God's plan, which makes me wonder, 
well, it makes me understand that they only have a limited knowledge of how God will work out his plan for the benefit of his people. There are other passages of scripture that tell us that where the angels are curious about how God is going to fix everything, how he's going to wrap things up, and tie it all up. And just like us, they're concerned of the when part. How long will it be, they say, till the end of Israel's final persecution, her deliverance? How long will they have to suffer? And the answer here is given as an oath. He puts his right hand, puts his left hand, and he swears or, or makes an oath towards the one who lives forever and ever. So another individual here, speaking of God the Father, you know, so we know this is not God the Father, but he's an oath towards heaven. And he says it will be for a time, time, and half a times, which from Revelation and other prophecy scriptures, we know that to be the three and a half years. And even though the future enemy of the Jews... The Antichrist would be in control more or less for that week, for that seven years. Intense persecution of the Jews is only going to be for the three and a half years. And if we were to go to the words of Christ in Revelation, or excuse me, not Revelation, in Matthew 24, Christ said, unless those days are shortened, all flesh would perish. So what Christ says is it has to be short because if it's not short, everybody on earth is going to die because it's going to be so bad. And by the way, you know, we've been talking about how the Antichrist mimics a lot of the things of Christ's ministry, okay? Christ's ministry lasted for how many years? Three and a half years, right? So the Antichrist's ministry will also last for three and a half years the same way. Again, he's trying to do, be exactly like Christ, okay, to deceive the world, okay? Especially the Jewish people who are still looking for the Messiah to come. They're still waiting, and here comes one, and he's able to do all these things. So they're going to be fooled, deceived. Look what verse 8 says. It says, although I heard, Daniel says, I did not understand. I, I can imagine. Can you imagine? I hear you. I just, I need to hear you again here, I, you know. It's just not, I'm just not understanding. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. So again, Daniel's having trouble understanding the prophecy, not anything new. Uh, so instead he asked an angel, well, how's it all going to end? And the angel responds, says, listen, just go about your way. In other words, go on about your life and don't be concerned about your lack of knowledge because the vision contains events that are going to happen far in your future. When Jesus, I go back to Acts chapter 1, when Jesus was getting ready to ascend up into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Christ is getting ready to ascend back up. And the disciples have been asking him, when are you going to come back and restore your kingdom? When are you going to come back? Restoration, political. When are you going to overthrow the Romans and restore your kingdom? That's what they were thinking. And Jesus says, Jesus says this. He says, listen, God the Father has got all that wrapped up nicely in a bow, okay? When he's ready to open it, he's going to open it, okay? But for now, right now, go about your way. I'm saying exactly what Daniel's was told. Go about your way. Be my witnesses. I've given you a task, a job to do. You've got to go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the rest of the world. He's telling Daniel the same thing. He's saying, go about your way. It refers to a time far towards the end. And as you read through the first couple of chapters of the book of Acts, the disciples are still, um, are still obsessed with wanting to know 
is he coming back? I mean, after he sends up into heaven, the next order of business, Peter says, hey, we need to choose a 12th apostle because Jesus says he wouldn't come back unless we got 12. And Judas has already died, so we need to get somebody else back in there. So they get somebody else back in there. And then in chapter 2, Peter at the end, he says, all of you who are here, you got to repent so that Jesus can come back. Chapter 3, similar. And then as it goes further along in the text, they start to understand and realize that they have a job to do here on earth. There are people that need Christ. There are people that need to hear the message. And so they slowly kind of lose, not lose, but it slowly goes out of their thinking about the coming kingdom. And they say, we've got to focus on getting as many people there. And with prophecy, prophecy should always cause us to be more evangelistic in nature because we know that it could happen at any time. So therefore, we know our time is short. Every day that goes by is one less day. So verse 10 is fairly a good description uh, of what's going to happen during the tribulation period. Um, many who undergo the oppression and persecution of the tribulation week will come to faith, but many will refuse and repent to be saved. Even in all the chaos, the natural disasters, all the calamities that come, some people just won't come to faith in Christ. Revelation 9 and Revelation 16 speak to this. Let me read you what Revelation 9 says, verse 20 and 21. It says, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither hear, uh, neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or the sexual immorality or their, or their thefts. Then Revelation 16, 9 says, And they were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. And then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. And so during that tribulation time, people will know that this is caused by whoever they might call him, the big man upstairs. You know, this is caused by the God of heaven, and yet we're still refusing to repent. So anyway, verse 10 kind of gives you a little idea of what it's going to be like during that tribulation period as far as what Daniel understands. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked, they shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise the wise shall understand. Verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. And blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you, second time, go your way, Daniel, till the end, for you shall rest and you will rise in your inheritance at the end of the days. Now, there are two important numbers he gives us at the end of the book of Daniel. Two specific numbers, okay? So verses 11 and 12 introduce us to two more numbers. Earlier in chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, we're told that severe persecution will take place and it will last the whole three and a half years of the tribulation period. That's 1,260 days. Now the angel states from what the time the Antichrist begins his persecution... Until the end, it's going to be 1,290 days. 
So we have an additional 30 days that Daniel gives us to reconcile. And Daniel doesn't tell us for sure what events happened for 30 days after the tribulation. But I go back to the words of Christ here in Matthew 25, and I might shed some insight on this. In Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, is where you find the judgment of the nations. And verses 31, 32, and 33 of Matthew 25 say this. It says, When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from the other as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left hand. So the judgment of nations comes, I, the way I understand is it comes after the tribulation is over. And it's for the people that actually survive the tribulation, okay? So there will be some people that survive the tribulation, but those people, if they're not believers in Christ and they go in and become part of the millennial kingdom, if they're unbelievers and they actually survive the tribulation, they can't go into the kingdom. They're not allowed. Because if you're not a believer in Christ, you can't have entrance into the kingdom. So some people will actually physically live through the tribulation period. They will, believers, accept Christ and somehow escape death. And they will go and live right into the millennial kingdom. Will help populate the millennial kingdom in the, in the physical sense. But then there'll be some that come through the tribulation period that are still very much unbelievers. I don't know how you could come through. We don't understand it because of our viewpoint and our perspective. We look at it and we say, how silly. I mean, seriously, how could you not? But Revelation is clear. It tells us that there are people who just see all of the things that happen and still refuse to believe. Still refuse to believe. I mean, we know people like that today, right? They still just refuse to believe. But even after all of that, they still refuse to believe. Well, uh, the Bible tells us that uh, obviously they can't have entrance into the kingdom. So this also means that people who trusted Christ in the tribulation will live to tell the story as they enter into the millennial kingdom, as they, I don't know, have a family and have kids. The kids, let me tell you about what it was like living in the tribulation period. You know, the worst time of all of history. Can you imagine the stories they would be able to tell? Look at, look at it this way. Let me put it up on the, on the slide. I put up the date so you could see it. There you go. So 1260 is the three and a half years. And that's the second half of the tribulation period. Here's your two scriptures. And you've got 30 days after at Judgment of the Nations, which I just talked to you about. And then he gives us another number. He says, blessed are those that make it to the 1,335 because that's when the kingdom starts. And that's the resurrections we've been talking about. That's the regatherings. The second number, blessed are those who wait and reach the 1,335 days. So most scholars agree that the 45 days here at the end might be a need to set up the government of the kingdom um, officially inaugurate maybe the kingdom. But I also like to think that it's when the final regathering of Israel takes place, spoken of in Ezekiel 20. Uh, you know, you're setting up this kingdom. Christ is ruling. You need to get everything all set up. you got to find all the Levites to administer and carry out the duties of the Millennium Temple and other things that are going to be happening. So here's the two numbers he gives us. So he says, blessed are those who make it to the 1335. Because if you get through the tribulation period and you get through the judgment of nations and you're separated, you're a sheep, not a goat, 
then you're going to get to go to the kingdom, which means you're a believer and you've gone through the tribulation, you're alive, and you get to go into the kingdom. Now, all that's great, but I love verse 13. The very last, the very last verse. It's especially fitting for Daniel. And it's one of the verses that continues just to draw me back to the book. I mean, it's a powerful, it's my second most favorite verse in Daniel. The first one is the most high God rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wishes. Just shows just God is just in complete control and just you don't even mess with it. Just, just how it is. It occurs two different times in Daniel. But verse 13, I love this. Look at this verse with me. But you, again Daniel, go your way till the end. For you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. So verse 13 is especially fitting for Daniel. No more revelations will be given to him. The time of his death is drawing near. He's in his late 80s. Daniel would meet with his death as every man does. But at the end of his days, he would be resurrected, what was prophesied here just a few chapters or a few verses earlier in chapter 12, verse 2, to receive his inheritance, which would be a great reward and a part in the kingdom of God. The certainty that, that this verse sets down, it just, it just creates a certain reality for us that, that we cannot miss. Those believers who are faithful to God and serve him will rise again to a future reward and inheritance. And what you do with the days that God has given you on earth truly, truly does matter. And it's going to be rewarded in the end. God sees how you serve him. And one day he's going to make everything right. I paraphrase it this way. Look at that. But you, Daniel, go your way till the end, death. For you shall rest, be buried, your body you will arise, resurrect to your inheritance reward at the end of the days. I mean, how simple can that be? Again, this verse is one of the verses that keeps drawing me back, drawing me back to the book of Daniel because this is in the Old Testament. Jesus said verses similar to this, but here's Daniel saying this, you know, 600 years before Jesus ever became incarnate in flesh and dwelt among us as, as the book of John says. There, 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 there's comfort in this verse. There's certainty here. And the certainty in this verse allows me just to simply rest in the fact that, listen, God has it all under control. As really bad as it seems, I mean, as really bad as those gas prices are, <laughs> I mean, as really bad as it's going to get probably further on in our lifetime, God is, nothing, uh, it doesn't take him by surprise. There are no hiccups in God's plan. Like, oops, I didn't see that coming. You know, he's got it all planned out. He's got it all plotted out. And, and just the certainty that's in this verse for Daniel. And by the way, Daniel never, ever, ever goes back to the land that he was taken from 70 years earlier. He doesn't. From all we know, he dies in Babylon. So as, at the age of, you know, 14 or 15, he was taken. Never, ever to return back to the land. But he will rise again one day, and he will get his inheritance, and he will get to get back into the land that he was taken out of, never to return from again. Now, 
all good things come to an end except eternity with Christ. That's a good thing. And that never comes to an end. So with that, we're done. We've completed.